Okay, so our third didactic is uh, from Dr. Nagy, and she's going to give us an update on what's new in the guidelines. And unfortunately, the newest new isn't quite out yet, but keep your eye posted over the next week or two, and you'll probably see an update, but she's going to do the best she can to kind of bring us up to speed on where we are. All right. So, yeah, sorry uh, for the the hope that the guidelines would be online by now. Um, they are in their last formatting changes currently. Um, but I will allude to things that I may be doing in the next few weeks as it relates to treating patients. Um, and while I don't speak for the guidelines, I will uh, try to give you some guidance on where this will be. Let's see here. Is that better? Oh, yeah, that's much better. Okay. And this is my disclosure slide. <clears throat> so learning objectives, I, I, I do want to briefly talk about the guidelines and some of the changes that will be coming in addition to the new regimens that have just been approved by the FDA. There are actually a number of new sections coming to the guidelines, um, which to some extent has delayed the rollout of the, the, the new regimens because there's a want to put these all online at the same time. Um, we'll talk about the FDA recommendations around the new, uh, two new DEA regimens, and then talk about potential places where you may see the guidelines um, uh, go off path uh, from FDA recommendations, which they are known to do um, in the setting of trying to provide a bit more nuance um, to the treatment of HCV patients. So how many of you have accessed the ASODIDSA guidelines online? Excellent. So... Most all of you know they are there. How many of you knew that there's like a, there's a, I guess it was maybe over the summer they rolled out a new format of the guidelines. Have you guys seen this? Much better, like it? Yeah, a, more of a tailored approach as opposed to scrolling through pages of pages of, we just wanted you to know all the hard work we've been doing so that you could see all the things that we'd written. Um, so this is, I think, a much, much nicer format and should be much more compatible with iPads and things of that sort. Um, and coming soon, and, and we really hope that this will be live by the end of the week, um, uh, are new sections for HCV in children, pregnancy, a full resistance, HCV resistance primer um, for those of you who want to know more about the terminology, et cetera. Um, obviously, the pending um, uh, two new regimens, and there actually will be, and I didn't put this up, there will be a new section for renal transplant as well, because in the past, all we had really was the, um, was the uh, liver um, transplant section, and I think increasingly there's a need to differentiate those two populations. So you guys will see that coming, and that should all be coming literally in a matter of days. Um, so I can't say much about what's going to be in the new sections, but just to highlight very quickly, um, though not surprisingly be a big focus on HCV testing in uh, perinatally exposed children. Um, and remember, we don't define chronic infection in a child until they're uh, greater than the age of three because these patients um, can actually clear the infection up to, to, to age three. Um, counseling regarding transmission as it relates to, obviously, a pregnant mother. Um, monitoring and medical management and then also treatment. As you know, we now have some uh, therapies or a therapy that is, that is actually FDA approved in children, and they'll provide that guidance. In pregnancy, again, a focus on testing, um, a treatment, um, and monitoring during pregnancy, as well as postpartum issues, so breastfeeding, et cetera. So those sorts of recommendations will be available for those of you who treat these other populations. And then the resistance primer, it's an interesting time to roll this out as resistance becomes potentially 
in some ways uh, less relevant um, uh, with the next uh, new round of regimens, but it does provide some terminology around assays, around some of the things that you'll hear people use, RAS versus RAV, and we'll talk about some of these things today. So I know for HIV providers, this is a relatively straightforward, but for, for many folks, this is not. And, and so we wanted to provide something in terms of... Um, in terms of the background, and, and then also uh, a per-regimen recommendation on whether or not you do RAS testing, either at baseline or in the setting of retreatment. So let's jump right in. Um, so now we have seven FDA-approved regimens for the treatment of patients that are either, and I, this is how I would think about patients as we move forward in terms of treatment, um, especially and in particular for genotype 1 patients where the complexities of that patient that might walk in the door for you, they could be treatment naive, they could have failed PEG-RIBA, they could have failed soft PEG-RIBA, soft RIBA, soft SIM, um, or they could have failed one of the current, you know, regimens, lidibisphere, sofosbuvir, the prod regimen. So it's a patient with genotype 1 could walk in your door and be pretty complicated. Um, and the prior guidelines, you know, really, and when it got to the retreatment population, was pretty complex and difficult to get through. And to be fair, there was a lack of much data as it related to treating a patient who had failed what we'd kind of consider a true, what I call a combination DA regimen, right? Soft SIM or one of the approved combinations like LEDSOF or PROD. Um, so I would break this down as we move forward in the guidelines. What you'll see is that the treatment of a treatment naive or a PEG riba experienced patient, if you can find one out there, um, are treated very, very similarly. Okay, um, and you'll see that as the new guidelines come out. And then I'll talk through some of the additional retreatment populations where the guidelines have attempted to streamline these groups so that. It, it, so that we don't have such a complex guideline. And this shows you, I mean, it, it actually is quite fascinating. Um, so five of these come as a fixed-dose combination, not all of them in a single tablet, but fixed-dose combination. Two now have eight-week options in patients without cirrhosis. Um, and one of those, when I say universal, what I mean by that is the eight-week regimen is approved as a pan-genotypic regimen, and it, and it isn't based on whether or not that patient is a, is a, has a particular viral load or a particular race or ethnicity or whether or not they have HIV. But this applies across the board as long as they don't have cirrhosis. So we do not have an eight-week regimen in patients with cirrhosis. Take note of that. It might come up later. Um, so one of these still requires ribavirin, and one may require ribavirin based on NS5A testing. And as you can imagine, as we get more and more regimens, seven regimens, at what point does a ribavirin-containing regimen no longer look like a recommended regimen? I think we're probably there. Um, and, and again, here, four of these have 12-week options for patient cirrhosis without ribavirin, which is quite impressive when you think about it, that we can treat, we have you have four options to treat cirrhotics in, in 12 weeks. Um, if you think back just two years ago, we had very few 12-week options, and when we did, it usually involved ribavirin. So again, I think you can look to see anything greater than 12 weeks no longer look recommended, given the options that we have. Ribavirin will no longer look like a recommended regimen because of the adverse event profile, and you should see a slim down um, a guideline that provides, I think, increasing amounts of guidance. But this shows you the current approved regimens, approved regimens in treatment naive and PEGRABA failure. So the new arrival, as you all heard, is glucaprovir pibrentisphere. I will, uh, moving forward, call that GP because it's a little bit easier to get out. 
Um, but you will also notice that that other regimen that was just approved, cefospavir, valpatisvir, voxaloprevir, which I would prefer to refer to as soft valvox moving forward, if that's okay with you all, um, is not up here, right? So keep that in mind as we talk about where these regimens fit in in terms of the approval. Um, because I think a lot of people thought that these would be approved across the board and treatment naive and salvage, and I think appropriately in many, in many, in many cases, um, uh, the FDA looked at this as where's the need and, and where's the data really, um, and, and I think they did a quite nice job. So when you think about retreatment then moving forward, and obviously pegribacil fits in the retreatment section, but because they look so much more like a treatment naive, that this is the attempt to distill this down into groups where treatment may look different. So you still have these folks that were exposed to first-generation protease inhibitors, right? So that's Sim, Peg, Riba, Tilaprovir, Bocepravir, uh, based regimens. And you can see that the regimens are not all, if you, don't, if you don't have cirrhosis, then you have a number of 12-week regimens. But once you get into a patient, patient population with cirrhosis, this part of the current guideline still looks pretty difficult. A lot of ribavirin, a lot of 24 weeks, um, and that's going to change well with the new regimens. And we'll talk about that. Um, there's also this attempt to try to lump together, and this was based on, I think, the registration program for both the GP and the soft bell box regimens. If you look at how they lumped patients together, they started lumping patients based on prior NS5A exposure. So did you fail a DAA regimen that had an NS5A in it? You're a lot different than a patient potentially who failed an, a DAA regimen that didn't have an NS5A. So when you start thinking about DAA failures, start thinking about them as it relates to prior exposure to NS5A. And the main reason for that is we don't, we, and we'll talk about this, we only really have one true next generation NS5A treatment. So treatment for NS5A failures, remember these are, these um, patients, you heard Dr. Sag say, when patients fail these regimens, as a general rule, they fail with a lot of resistance. And we'll talk about the differences here as it relates to the two new regimens as to whether that holds true. And the resistance mutations for the NS5As in particular are extremely fit. And we'll, I know you guys are HIV providers mostly. We'll talk about this a bit. But that means they stick around for a while. So I have a, pa I have a number of patients who failed clinical trials with short regimens or older NS5A regimens, and their RAS is still around at 90% of the population for over two years. So as opposed to the way we think about most resistance mutations where there's a cost of fitness, and usually the wild type comes back up like in HIV after a couple of months, that does not happen with NS5A resistance mutations. And that's why this exposed group of people is viewed quite differently in terms of their risk um, and, and in terms of risk of failing retreatment. Um, and, then, and then we kind of try to lump together all these other folks that have been exposed to what is primarily cefospavir-based regimens, right? Cefospavir-simipravir, decladisvir-cefospavir, lidipisvir-cefospavir, potentially soft valpat um, um, uh, regimens. And so in an attempt to not have a retreatment section of the guidelines that just continues to expand, um, the attempt was to, to lump these together. And I think the nice thing is what you're looking at here for these treatment groups is still 12 to 16 weeks and a lot of treatments that are 12 weeks without ribavirin. And that's what I want to focus on as we move forward, um, but to recognize that this is how I'd start lumping retreatment patients together as you think about them. So we have a question for your little clickers. I have to make sure I do this correctly. But So which statement's true regarding the FDA approval of the GP regimen? Is it that it's an eight-week regimen only in patients without cirrhosis, a 12-week regimen regardless of cirrhosis, eight-week regimen only in treatment-naive patients? 
Is it a 16-week regimen in patients with prior treatment experience? Um, is it a single-dose daily pill? So I think, okay, so I think you can, you can type in your answer. Um, Dr. Sag, do you have any idea? I don't know any of this music. I have two five-year-olds, so if it isn't like on Sesame Street, I have no idea. Did you get it? No? All right. All right, let's see what we got here. So most of you said it's an eight-week regimen only in patients without cirrhosis, and that is exactly right. So um, it is eight weeks in patients without cirrhosis, and we'll talk about that. Um, and it's predominantly in treatment-naive and PEG riba failures. It's a 12-week regimen regardless of cirrhosis. So it is, you cannot treat a patient with cirrhosis with eight weeks, um, but it's, that's not just in patients with cirrhosis. There, there are non-cirrhotic patient populations who will get 12 weeks of this regimen, right? Um, 16 weeks in prior treatment, this shows you where the FDA kind of split things apart and really hashed out whether they were NS5A failures or not. NS5A failures get 16 weeks. Um, Non-NS5A failures get 12. Okay, so this is, if you look at, I mean, how many of you looked at the FDA approval for this regimen? I mean, the table is quite impressive, right? There's a lot of different little subgroups of patients. Um, and then um, you all got this, um, or actually 25%, I should say, um, answered for number five. So this is a fixed dose combination, but it's really important for providers to know it comes three pills. So it's not a single tablet regimen. It's a three tablet regimen all one time at the same time, but making sure we're educating the patients appropriately. All right. So again, co-formulated or fixed dose, however you want to call it. Apparently the FDA views them as the same. Three tablets. It's pan-genotypic. Okay, but the approval, although it's approved in all genotypes, the approval based on the genotypes and the prior experience can be different in terms of whether it's an 8, a 12, or a 16-week regimen. It is a true next-generation regimen. This is a true next-generation NS3-4 protease, and it is a, the only true next-generation NS5A, right? Um, so it is actually active against the RASs at the 28, 30, 31, and 93 positions. But I would argue that resistance is still important. Um, and ultimately, the A30K mutation tends to probably play out in patients with genotype 3. And you see that in the FDA approval with the need to use, use 16 weeks in some of these genotype 3 patients, as opposed to doing testing. So this is not a, recommend, this is not a regimen where RAS testing is recommended by the FDA. And I don't think you'll see that come out in the guidance either. Um, but what they instead did was increase the length of treatment to address that issue, right? So as, as you guys know, in the old days, when we talk about this, just last year we would have said that if you had resistance, then potentially you would add ribavirin or increase the length of treatment. And that's essentially the way the FDA has dealt with this issue. Um, it is, it, there, there has uh, negligible renal excretion. So this is a regimen that's approved in patients with CKD and end-stage renal disease, which is great. It contains a protease inhibitor and, and just Protease inhibitors mean that you're not going to be able to use this in the patient with severe liver disease, right? So no child PUB or C with any patient who ha or any regimen that has a protease inhibitor in it. And then how many of you knew that this regimen has an interaction with PPIs? Yeah, yeah. And again, the wording in the FDA package insert, in my opinion, lacks um, guidance. Um, so hopefully you'll see some guidance coming on this regimen, but it does have a PPI issue, and we'll talk about that. Um, so the program for this in terms of getting the FDA approval is quite impressive, but you can see that the bulk of the data exists in what I would call non-alvage populations. Treatment-naive, 
PEG-RIBA experience. But in true salvage regimens where patients have failed, you know, the, the LEDSOF, the DAXOF, the, the PROD regimens, we are only in phase two, which means very small numbers, and I believe a, a, a lack of real understanding on what the appropriate length of therapy is. Um, the issue, because it is, a, you know, safe in end-stage wound disease, it's a critically important drug. It fills a very important need. But when you're treating salvage patients, we're on less sturdy ground as it relates to the amount of data that we have. And we'll walk through some of this. So number one, treatment with this regimen in patients without cirrhosis, it's quite phenomenal. I mean, look at this. And across all genotypes, the only place, again, where you might see something that no one would complain about a 97 or 98% cure rate, uh, with the uh, red being 12 weeks and the blue being 8, it shows you where this issue of the 8 weeks uh, or the 8 and 12 weeks may lie for this, for this regimen in genotype 3, but really very, very impressive. So again, lumped together was PEG, RIBA, and soft failures. I'll tell you, there weren't many soft failures in this study. Um, relapse rate less than 1%. That's a number I like to look for. Um, but here's another thing about, here's one thing about this regimen. When you do fail, you do fail with resistance, almost universally, NS5A and protease, okay? And that's really important to think about um, as you make some of these decisions. And actually, when this was presented at the European Liver Meeting, the summary on the poster for this study was that treatment-naive genotype 3s may need 12, not 8. We'll talk about what the uh, FDA said. And that treatment-experienced genotype 3s may need 16, um, this is actually what the FDA went with, 16, in patients who have failed um, a PEG, RIBA, or sofosbuvir-containing regimen. However, they did not um, heed this, and I think it's based on small numbers, um, where treatment-naive genotype 3 non-serotics get 8 and serotics get 12. So this shows you some of that data, which is their treatment-naive no-cirrhosis study. Um, so initially, they set out to compare 12 weeks of GP to Daxoff, which was the one of the standards of care for 12 weeks. And when they realized it was performing very well, they added an eight-week arm. And you can see that, for all intents and purposes, based on all the intent-to-treat analysis, this, this does look quite good. Um, but when you look at actual failures, the Daxoff arm had one failure, um, the 12-week arm had four, one relapse, one viral breakthrough, and the eight-week arm had six, five relapses and one viral breakthrough. Um, I think this is what made many of us think twice about whether or not eight weeks should be recommended in this population. Um, they could show that baseline resistance in this treatment-naive population was predictive of failure, but these are small numbers, and so um, it's hard to make a recommendation about additional testing based on small numbers. Um, but you can see here that 50% of the failures did have an A30K at baseline. And this is where many people say, there clearly is an issue with the A30K um, here, especially when you shorten therapy. Remember, when you think about, you, you saw the slide from Dr. Sag, the, the baseline predictors, even back in the soft riba days, was cirrhosis, um, prior experience. Um, back then, it was potentially gender or sex and, and race. Um, and I would throw in there NS5A resistance. And if you start adding a few of those up, potentially a longer course of therapy is needed. Um, I think this, will some, this is something that we're waiting to see how this plays out. But when these patients fail, they fail with a dual mutation, um, and then they have pretty significant resistance. So I think this is where 
the guidelines um, are not going to be able to provide you much more than the FDA uh, because the numbers are small, but there's a real hope that we'll see some real-world data to guide us. And this may be one where we find a year from now there are changes based on real-world data um, regarding whether or not eight weeks in a treatment-naive, no cirrhosis patient population is, in fact, the right thing to do. So in DAA failures, this is what I was talking about. So this is, uh, this is all we have of this regimen in patients who have failed um, either an NS5A, um, as you can see here, or a dual NS5A or a protease. So this is not many patients, you know, just a little bit over 90 patients total um, that led to the approval of this regimen. And as you can see, if you look at the numbers here in terms of cure rate, this is prior exposure. If you previously failed a protease only, so what does that mean? The FDA lumped this into telaprevir, bosepravir, semiprevir, but they added in soft sim into this group. Um, then you're okay based on, I guess, 27 patients. Um, but if you failed uh, an NS5A regimen, 12 weeks does not look okay. Tiny numbers, not sure 16 necessarily is convincing, but this is what the approval is, 16 weeks in this population. And it was not approved in this group, patients who failed a PI-NS5A combination, okay? So it's very interesting. But this is really the slide, I think, that the FDA, you know, took home at night to review and consider um, how to approve this regimen because it's straight off of this in terms of the, the, the recommendation by the FDA. So small numbers for sure. And in cirrhosis, it's a no-brainer. This regimen for 12 weeks is quite impressive, um, uh, to be fair, if you um, haven't failed a a DAA combination regimen, um, it's really quite impressive. So for cirrhotic patients, it obviously performs very well, and this is where the 12-week comes from. No patient with cirrhosis has received eight weeks of this regimen um, outside of a clinical trial. There's a current clinical trial going on of eight weeks of this regimen in treatment-naive patients with cirrhosis except for genotype 3. So there may be a change in the label coming, but we'll see how that performs. Just a quick approved in renal failure, right? Performed very well. Approved in HIV. And the approval in HIV um, included a lot of patients with, uh, with eight weeks. So they basically looked at eight weeks in patients without cirrhosis, 12 weeks in cirrhosis. This got the HIV indication, um, which is fantastic, right? So this is a regimen where versus the lead soft regimen where the guidelines say we don't have enough data to use eight weeks of lead soft in a patient without cirrhosis who's treatment naive with a viral load of 6 million where you might want to use eight weeks. Don't do that in patients of African descent or in patients who um, have HIV. So this approval, obviously, is across the board, as I mentioned, universal. I feel very comfortable using this for eight weeks in an HIV patient. So quickly on drug-drug interactions, um, this regimen is okay with ropivirine because this is not viewed to be a clinically significant increase in ropivirine. Um, it's good with raltegravir. This shows you the regimen with dolutegravir, abacavir, and uh, 3TC, and you can see that we're well within um, the percent GMR range that's considered safe. Um, but this is where we run into some trouble, okay? So this is the GP regimen with the boosted elvitegravir regimen, and you can see that the increase in glucaprevir, which is the protease, which we are a little bit nervous when you start getting two to three-fold levels of a protease inhibitor, um, is uh, about three times higher, right? three times higher. The issue here is that this actually um, got approval by the FDA. The FDA says that this three times higher increased exposure to glucaprevir is safe. Um, and I'm, and I, I think that's based on their entire larger phase three data. 
um, in terms of other patients who'd been exposed to this, but how many of those patients had cirrhosis? So remember, you take this with a cirrhotic patient whose exposure to glucoprevir is twofold higher, and I don't know, I mean, there's a lot of pharmacologists in the room. Is that additive? I mean, does it multiply? As you all know, we don't know what that does. And so this is one where the FDA says this is a safe combination. I can tell you in the clinical trial, one patient got this, got, was, was on this regimen. And so where the, where the guidance will try to provide some guidance is to say, we don't know the safety of this in patients with HIV per se, and certainly in a patient with cirrhosis. And the idea would be to look for protease inhibitor toxicity, which would likely be hepatotoxicity. So monitoring liver enzymes a bit more closely until we get more um, experience with this in the clinical setting. Okay? So just be, beware, um, but know that the guidance, both in the DHHS as well as from ASLD, IDSA, will come out to provide some, some recommendations on testing around this until we have more data. All right. Um, but safety otherwise, this is a very, very, all these regimens are amazingly, amazingly safe, is what I would say. As long as you use them in the right patients, and remember, no protease inhibitors in patients um, with child PUB or C disease. So any questions about GP? Other than that, I, I now you're like, oh, my God, I've got to look at the package insert. Just carry that table around with you. But also, again, know that the guidelines are going to provide this for you. And I, I'm going to go through softball box here in a minute. I just wanted to. Pause for a second to see if folks had any questions. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. So they had a, they they got exposed for ten days and then you stopped it completely. Mm. So you know what I would say is this: you're probably okay um, because ten days is unlikely to induce resistance in a patient like that. Um, would I be inclined to test for resistance, at least for the NS5A, to make sure? I mean, what we know is the less exposure you have, the less likely you develop treatment-emergent resistance. Um, but if you had treatment-emergent resistance, I'd be, I'd be very wary of doing that. Um, so I would say that, that you're likely okay um, uh, because it's only a 10-day period, but I'd probably check for resistance, and if they had it, um, I would use it as a reason to say the patient was treatment, you know, treatment experienced, um, and I'd move forward with whatever the recommendation was for that. So whether that would be, in this case, what you're describing would be 16 weeks, um, or actually it wouldn't be approved, obviously, in that regimen, right, because it's a PI combination NS5A where this regimen is not approved, um, and you'd go with the soft Vox regimen. And I'll, I mean, I'll ask Ken or Mike uh, whether or not they, what they would do in a patient who got 10 days of prod, you said, right? Um, and then was taken off because of, um, of intolerance of ribavirin, suppressed their viral load in that period of time. Yeah. Um, and whether you'd be, you'd look more of that patient as a treatment naive or as a treatment experienced. We know from from the early days in the use of PIs that um, the emergence of resistant variants was extremely quick and represented as much as 60 to 80 percent of the population by three days in. So, uh, With monotherapy. With monotherapy. Monotherapy. So it, I think that, that your risk of having uh, 
having resistance mutations is very high at 10 days, and I would now start to treat that patient as resistant or wait a while and do some testing. You don't need to jump right to the next therapy. I mean, the patient suppressed their viral load and stopped. I think that it's hard to know. I mean, the bottom line is if you look at the data from the Synergy study, for example, where patients got lead soft um, or even the triple regimen, their older triple regimen for four, six, eight um, weeks, it was very clear that the number of weeks of exposure increased the risk that when you came back up and relapsed, you were going to have resistant variants. But the issue is 10 days is 10 days. They were exposed. So I think similarly, I think you have to look for resistance. And if they had it, you'd have to go with a salvage regimen. All right, so I'm just going to, this was about the cirrhosis. So this is a summary. Um, you guys have this slide. I don't want to um, take too much time because I want to get to the soft Vox regimen. So this is a question around the soft Vox FDA approval. Is it an eight-week regimen all, oh, let me get you started. Eight-week regimen only in patients without cirrhosis, 12 weeks regardless of cirrhosis, eight-week regardless of prior treatment experience, approved for all genotypes across all DA failures. Say what you guys say. Mm -mm. Technical difficulty. All right. Approved across all genotypes or an eight-week regimen. So the correct answer here is actually two. Um, it's a 12-week regimen. That's why we're here. Um, it's a 12-week regimen regardless of the presence of cirrhosis. It did not get an eight-week indication. I think this is why I put this question up there because lots of people saw lots of publications and lots of presentations on NATAP, et cetera, at meetings of an eight-week regimen. This is not approved regimen for eight weeks. Um, and you will not see eight weeks in a, in, in a guideline either. Um, and it is approved. Um, a, it is a pangenotypic regimen, but it is not approved as a pangenotypic regimen in patients who are non-NS5A DAA failures. And I'll show you the data as to where the FDA picked out particular subtypes or genotypes um, to give approval. So as an NS5A salvage, yes, pangenotypic. As a non-NS5A salvage, okay, like a SimSoft salvage, not pangenotypic in terms of its approval. Okay, again, fixed dose combination. This is a single pill. As a regimen, it is pangenotypic, but it is not necessarily approved that way, right? Um, true next generation? No. Um, it's a next generation NS3, but it is not a next generation NS5A um, because the Y93 can still confer um, a resistance. As a triple regimen, resistance does not matter, um, but as a single drug, the Valpatosphere is not a true N uh, next gen. This also contains a protease. So all rules apply for protease inhibitors, right? Um, so this is going, when you hear protease inhibitor, now you know there's going to be more drug interactions, more issues with HIV medications, and it is not going to be um, uh, allowable in patients with severe liver disease. Um, so just remember that as we get into these PI regimens. So phosphovir is still limited with renal um, safety, so it is not approved in patients with, a CK, with CKD or a GFR less than 30. And remember, valpatosphere has these acid-suppressing acid issues, so PPIs are going to be a problem um, for this regimen as well. So you can see here, interestingly, the approach by this group in terms of approval was much more focused in many ways on salvage, and that's exactly what they got, right? They had studies in treatment-naive and peg riba failures, but we'll show you that what they went after was at 8 versus 12, and they didn't meet the FDA criteria, Okay. So this shows you the Polaris 2 and the Polaris 3 were studies where the primary goal was can you get eight weeks 
verses 12. These were eight verses 12 week randomized studies of the same regimen of this triple. And what you can see here is that while it looked good, there was a very high failure rate, particularly in genotype 1A patients. But that meant this study, um, which was the Polaris 2, did not meet the FDA requirement for a successful non-inferiority study, and therefore it did not hit. Many people wondered whether the FDA would pick out some of these and say, well, these look good for eight weeks, though. Um, they did not, okay? And to be fair, there was no need because there was another eight-week regimen um, that had uh, actually met its FDA-required um, cutoffs. So in non-NS5A, so the, the other way that this went then, again, remember I told you how the guidelines may reflect this is, so then you start breaking this down by prior for the salvage regimens, where do we stand? Non-NS5A versus NS5A failures, right? So the Polaris 4 was a non-NS5A inhibitor. So primarily these were patients who failed soft sim um, uh, regimens, to be honest with you, or some of their study drugs that were um, uh, so older produced inhibitors that never made it to market. Um, they looked at 12 weeks of that therapy versus 12 weeks of SOFVEL, which to date during the study would have been the standard of care, right, for this patient population. Um, and you can see here that in the 12-week SOFVEL VOX arm, there was only one relapse. That patient did not relapse with resistance. And what I will tell you is there's only one patient to my knowledge in the program that when they failed softball Vox, that they failed with resistance. So interestingly, with this regimen, you do not bear the cost of resistance if you fail. Um, but if you look here of the 10 of 15 softball failures, um, there was resistance on treatment emergent resistance. So this, these patients do pay the price of resistance, which is obviously very, very concerning. Um, what I will also tell you is, and I think I don't have this. Oh, yes, I do, having a slide. So if you look at this, so the 12 weeks of softvelvox in blue, softvel in 12, this was the comparator. What the FDA said was, okay, so 1As, it's clearly better, right? That's where a lot of the failures were. Threes, it's clearly better. But to be fair, softvelvox versus softvel didn't look any different in 1Bs or 2s or 4s. And this is the first data for softvel in these non-NS5A failures, right? Um, and so, in fact, what moves forward is the FDA saying, we're going to give you 12-week approval in this group and this group, but we're not going to give you approval in this group because SoftVel looked just fine. And it doesn't have that extra drug. Um, and, and so that's how this went down as it relates to the FDA approval. Um, so a bit of piecing out, hence the non-pangentive approval for non-NS5A failures. Interesting, right? It's only in 1As and 3s. For 12 weeks, 12 weeks, it's all 12 weeks. There's no other length of therapy for this drug other than 12 weeks. Makes it a little bit easier. So what about NS5A failures? Okay, so these were in 1 through 6. It was actually primarily a placebo arm for all the genotype 1s, and then all other patients got just the treatment arm. And you can see here there was a 2.2% relapse rate, so patients did fail. These are really difficult to treat patients, though. They failed in NS5A, right? Um, but if you look at this, the only failures, relapses, were cirrhotics. And four of the six relapses were genotype 3 cirrhotics, okay? So the approval for this regimen, hands down, is 12 weeks. The question I would ask to you as a clinician is, would you give your genotype 3 cirrhotic who failed Daxoff um, 12 weeks, or would you do something different? Um, and I would say look to the guidelines to provide you some of that guidance, and we'll talk this through in a case as well.
Um, but this is where 12 weeks comes from for the NS5A failures, okay? Where do we have no data, no studies? As you saw, that was a pretty short list for registration studies, right? No data in transplant, no data in decomps, which is not surprising because of protease, no data in HIV, no phase three trial, and no CKD in atrial disease. So there's a big gaping hole here, much of which is filled by other regimens. Um, would I not use this in HIV patients? Of course I would. Right, we don't. We've we've gotten way past that, but we do have to worry about the HIV medication. So where are we with this? So this shows you the increased exposures of voxelopravir. So voxelopravir is that protease. Most of us don't like two to three-fold increased exposures of uh, protease inhibitors. Um, and what you can see here is with boosted regimens, darunavir and the elvitegravir, um, you see pretty significant. So this is a 2.4-fold increase in AUC for darunavir and a 2.7-fold increase for um, the voxelopravir with the boosted elvitegravir cobi regimen. What do you think the FDA says about this? Do it. It's all right. <laughs> Don't be scared. Um, so, so what about if this patient had cirrhosis, which these patients don't even have HIV, right? These are healthy volunteers. We don't have any data in HIV patients. Um, there's a 70% increase in exposures if you have cirrhosis. There's a 24 to 2.7% fold increase if you have HIV and you're on one of these boosted regimens. We have no idea what happens when you put them together, okay? The FDA says it's okay based on phase 3, 2 data, pop, pop PK data that says that patients can have pretty high exposures and do okay. Um, but the reality is we have no idea. So again, you, sh you can look to the guidance to provide guidance to say until we have more real-world data. We're not saying don't do it. We're just saying you probably do want to monitor these patients a little bit more closely as it relates to liver enzymes. What we don't want to do is get in the way of patients getting access and some HIV patient who's on these doesn't get it because their provider isn't comfortable. What we do want to say is we maybe think the FDA, um, you know, wants to make sure people have access, so they're kind of, you know, saying it's okay, um, but we would just be a little bit more cautious until we get more data. Does that make sense? Um, all the others are all right, and again, quite safe. Um, so we will go through a lot of this as we get into the cases, and you guys have these slides, um, so I'm going to stop there, but I would say remaining challenges, I would predict we may see more failures in genotype 3 than, um, than we saw in the studies. Um, we still have patients who are going to very quickly not have many options. If you have CKD and you're on a 40 milligram BID dose of a PPI and you need dilations of your esophagus every year, and I have a couple of those, um, incompatible ARVs are still going to be some issues. So we still have issues where if you get a patient who has two of these, it may get a little bit more tricky pretty quick. Um, and, and then access, I actually think, looks much better. As you guys probably know, the GP regimen came in at a cost of about $26,000, which is quite impressive. Um, and I'm already seeing this play out as it relates to our North Carolina Medicaid in terms of expanding access. So we do hope to see access actually expand given this increased market competition, which is great. All right. I know they're going to say there's no time for questions. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, so there's no data in transplant with these new agents, but uh, if I remember correctly, they did do the PK studies with Tacro and Cyclosporin. So GP has data in transplant. Um, it was actually Softvolvox that didn't, and you're right. Um, they do have the Cyclosporin data in the package insert. 
Um, and it's, I mean, not surprising, right? It's very, 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 very high. Um, so they didn't go after any studies in transplant. GP did, you know, I mean, you know this as well as I did. The Magellan study, um, which was a phase two study, did look at post-liver transplant for GP, and it has an approval. It's the Sofelvox um, that didn't go after that um, and therefore didn't get an approval. Um, and I think it becomes an issue with the guidelines that, as you both know, having sat on them and co-chaired them, um, the, the motto has always been that what we want to do is make sure that we are get, you know, pr um, plugging holes where there's no approval and people need more guidance. But when you have multiple FDA-approved regimens um, in transplant, you know, it, it becomes a query as to whether or not you go on a limb um, for a regimen where all you have is drug-drug interaction data, right? So it just didn't get the approval. Any other questions? So we will definitely go into the nuances of this over and over again in the cases because it's a lot of information um, to soak in, obviously. Um, but yeah. Yeah. here's what we might. Here's what we might we can break now. Yeah. We can break now and take about 15 minutes. So we'll come back at 11:30. Grab a box lunch. You don't have to eat it now. Just have it with you. You can eat it now if you want to. It's 1230 something. Um, and you can, uh, you, you can grab a lunch, grab a drink, and then we're going to just plow through the last three sets of cases, and we'll be done at 2 o'clock. And that way, uh, we'll be on time. We can finish on time. I see affirmative nods. That's good. I also might suggest maybe you and I should switch so that we do the mono-infected cases first, because that will reinforce everything you just heard. Then I'll do the HIV co-infect, and we'll finish with Dr. Sherman with the complicated uh, type patients. Okay, so okay, so I so we'll give you the quarter to quarter till uh, twelve. We'll, we'll reconvene at eleven forty-four. Okay, great.